turn with me to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, starting with verse 20. It's the last section. We covered the first two sections of Jesus' prayer. John 17, starting verse 20, Jesus speaking or praying to the Father. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their words, that they may all be as one, that they may all that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you gave me, may be with me where I am, that, where, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have known that you sent me, and I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. Let's pray again. Father, I pray, I ask for the strength of your spirit, the wisdom of your spirit, the anointing of your spirit, that you'd help me to teach your word as you want it presented. Lord, everything that you want to drop off would drop off. Lord, you'd remove every distraction in this room that we might hear from you, Jesus. Those watching online, those here, you'd soften our hearts, open our ears, that we would not just hear, but we'd be doers and appliers of your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Jesus begins this prayer to the Father, praying first for himself. I'm going back to the, the start of the prayer, all the way back to verse 1. I wish I could read the whole section in its totality, but we don't have the time, or even preach the whole thing in one message, but we definitely need three full weeks. But to go back to the beginning, Jesus began this prayer to the Father, praying for himself first. And the hour of trial that had now come for him to be glorified before his death. And then he prayed for the 11. He prayed for the 11 disciples that the Father had given them. He prayed for their sanctification and for the calling and the ministry that he had chosen them to fulfill. And now, in this final portion of the prayer, he turns his attention to all who will ever believe in Jesus and his desire to see a world that is in darkness, just like the world around us right now, come to the light of the world. Jesus has publicly proclaimed that he came to earth from the Father. He has revealed the Father's love for the world. He's revealed the Father's plan of salvation. Jesus revealed his own divinity by his extraordinary teaching, his powerful miracles. All miracles are powerful, right? And even the authority of his voice. People said, this man speaks as one with authority. But with all that Jesus has proclaimed and all that he's revealed, you know that each individual soul has to choose one by one to say, I believe that's true. Or someone can say, I don't believe it. 
You had to get to the place you say, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I believe I need him. Each soul has to come to that place. The 11 have believed, minus Judas, but so have many others aren't in the room. Mary and Joanna and the women that will come to the tomb, they believed. Others, like the Roman centurion, he is just a half a day away from believing. If you'd have told the Roman centurion the night before Jesus' death, you know, you're going to believe in Jesus tomorrow, he'd be like, what are you talking about? But he's going to be a believer. Paul, a few years later, he's going to be a believer. So Jesus, just hours before laying down his life, he's praying for them, all the believers, the disciples and but all the souls and all the centuries ahead, right up until now, those that will believe. And he's also praying for the impact of the gospel throughout the world, that the whole world would believe. And you see the title this morning, The Prayer of Jesus, Part 3, that the world may believe. We have a lot of Americans that will believe in a lot of things these days, right? Things that aren't true, things they read on Facebook, things they read on Twitter, what we're talking about, you can not only believe in, but stake your soul on. Look back at verse 20. Jesus said in, in this prayer, continuing this prayer, longest prayer in the Bible, if you're visiting with us, uh, Jesus' prayer here the night before he goes to the cross, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Jesus has just been interceding for the 11, and in last week's section, uh, the passages that we looked at, he had been interceding last week in that middle section of the prayer for the 11. He's also spent the entire evening focusing on the 11, pouring into them, preparing them for the days and years ahead. But Jesus is God, and because he's God, he has an infinite capacity. You ever said, I think I got nothing left in the tank? You ever said that? You said it this morning, right? You probably said it three times this week. I got nothing left in the tank. But Jesus, he has an endless reservoir because he's God in human flesh. And he can, and he was, 100% focused on his mission, 100% focused on the cross, 100% focused on his disciples. So you and I would be like 33%, 33%, 33%, right? 4%, whatever. But he's 100% focused on all those things, and yet at the same time, he's thinking far beyond all that. And he prays these words, I do not pray for these alone, but those who will believe. Only Jesus could know that this prayer covers the next 2,000 plus years. Minimum, however long that the Lord gives us on this earth right up into this very second. This prayer is covering right to right now. And it'll cover tomorrow and people that will believe the week after that. But only Jesus could have foreseen every soul that would ever believe the gospel and see what these men, these 11 men, would preach and would someday write down that we now know as Scripture and the impact they would have. I got saved in June of 1995, as you guys know, because the Holy Spirit convicted me and brought me to a place 
of me knowing that I needed Jesus as my Lord and Savior. There was no doubt in my mind I needed Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. I'm still convinced of it. But me and my wife, uh, Sarah, we both came to Christ in the same message, and it was preached from Revelation chapter 3, which was to the church in Laodicea, which was in ancient Turkey, and written down by John the Apostle. And 2,000 years later, we, all of that led us to Christ. We didn't believe that morning in John the Apostle. We believed in what John wrote about Jesus. Amen? And when you tell someone your story, they're not believing in you. They're believing in the Jesus you're telling. You're just delivering the mail. But it isn't amazing. It's amazing to know if you have believed in Jesus, that he was praying for you that very night. All that would believe. Before the cross, he was praying for you. Those who will believe, that's millions and millions of born-again souls. But Jesus goes on. Look at verse 21. That they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world, uh, that the world may believe that you sent me. That all believers for all time would become one. That all the believers would become as one. We need that, don't we? It says in the scriptures in Ephesians 4.4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called, and one hope for your calling. The desire of Jesus would that the church would act as one body, moving in the same direction with the same calling. In Philippians 1.27, it says, uh, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, that so whether I come to you or I am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together to make a lot of money. Striving together to build a bigger church. Striving together to build a big name for yourself. Striving together to sell a lot of books. Doesn't say any of that, does it? It says striving together for the faith of the gospel. That's what it was all about. That the oneness would be, that the, that the faith would grow and the gospel would go. The faith would grow and the gospel would go out. The church doesn't always act like one, does it? Pretty splintered at times. It's not a good testimony when that's the case. But Jesus had told his disciples to love and to serve one another, that it would be a witness on a fractured world. We expect the world to be all fractured. We expect the world to be at odds with each other. We expect people to gossip and dislike one another, but it should not be that way in the body of Christ. It shouldn't be that way in a marriage. It honors the Lord. It shouldn't be that way in the body of Christ. But if the, if the church acts as one, if the church loves as one, it'll be a witness that they'll believe. They're like, ah, Jesus said, same night, upper room, the world will know that you're truly my disciple if you love one another. And love brings unity. Pride brings division. Jesus has commanded, he has taught, he's now prayed that all believers, us and all believers over the last 2,000 years, 
would be as one. Satan's always been against one. Remember, the first two brothers couldn't live in harmony. Cain and Abel. One murders the other one. It didn't take long before capital crimes and division and hatred was in there. But, but God has always been about bringing us together in him. And he desires that his church would be of one mind and one spirit, not just any spirit, the spirit of God. So what does that mean and what does it not mean? He's already prayed. Remember back in verse 11, he prayed, Holy Father. We talked about that's the only time it's ever mentioned in the Scriptures, only time Jesus ever referred to his Father as Holy Father. Verse 11, chapter 17. That's why we should never, in Rome, bow down before a man and say, Holy Father. That title is reserved for God the Father alone. But he's prayed, Holy Holy Father, right? God is infinitely holy. All the angels do around the throne is say, holy, 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 holy. He's prayed that the disciples would be sanctified. What does that mean? It's to be set apart because God says, because I am holy, he's called his people to be holy. Now, we're not naturally holy. We're actually full of holes, right? <laughs> so he has to actually mend us and sanctify us and cleanse us and set us apart because we're not really holy at all. We're a mess. But he's called us to be sanctified and to be set apart. But not just set apart, in truth. Go back to last week's session because I don't have time to go back there. Remember he said, sanctify them by your word. Your word is what? Truth. Your word is truth. Truth is really important in the holiness of God's people. Truth is really important in the wholeness and the purity of the gospel. Amen? You start taking pieces away from the gospel, you don't have a true gospel anymore. Say, all you have to do is say the sinner's prayer. No, you just don't say a sinner's prayer. You've got to know who you're praying to. Amen? Amen. You can get people to do a formula. That's not the gospel. So the truth is important. Truth is not fluid. Did you know that? <laughs> truth doesn't change. Whatever God says is true is going to be true a thousand years from now. The truth does not, the Bible doesn't change with society's changes. Well, but, 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 uh, but California said this, and New York said this, so I, I guess the Bible, no, no, it doesn't matter what they say. Truth is not fluid. Truth is constant. And by the way, truth is not loved by everybody. A lot of people hate truth. Why, why some of our brothers and sisters are getting killed for the faith is because they speak the truth. They speak who Jesus is. They speak the gospel and then they're hated for it. But Jesus said on the same night, you'll be hated by all men for my name's sake. So he's bringing all this together. Leonard Ravenhill, speaking of truth, he said, if Jesus had preached the same message that ministers preach today, he would have never been crucified. Isn't that true? In many of our churches today, we have so many pastors that won't even preach the scriptures. They won't say what the Bible says because, well, people don't want that. Jesus wouldn't have been crucified at all. But Jesus, one of his names is the way, the truth. One of his names is truth. And our unity in Jesus is in his truth. It's in him himself. But the world is opposed to Jesus and thereby opposed to truth. So it's very important that our oneness be in truth. 
God is truth. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And like truth, he never changes. So this unity of us being one, this unity in the body of Christ, both here and around the world, this unity has to be rooted in eternal holiness and the righteousness of Jesus. It has to be based in truth. It can't be a unity around false doctrines. Uh, There's no way I'm going to unite with any pastors in town or churches or anything that are teaching a false doctrine. I'll pray for them, but I won't unite around a false doctrine. You shouldn't either. Matter of fact, if you hear me teaching false doctrine, you should leave. Or maybe first confront me, but then leave. You know, if I, but if I start teaching something that's false, talk to me first, and if that won't, I won't listen, grab the elders, and I still won't listen, get rid of me or leave, but whatever. Truth's that important, amen? So it can't be around false doctrine. It can't be around accepting or just abandonment of Scripture. Say, well... We would continue to preach this, but it's not popular, so let's just lop that off. Let's just get rid of that stuff. Let's skinny it down to the one thing people like or two things and everything else. That's what Thomas Jefferson, he cut out passages of his Bible. You ever been up to uh, Monticello? He cut out all the parts he didn't like. It didn't make sense to him. No, we can't unite around anything but the truth of the Word of God and the truth of who Jesus is. But, but we also, at the same time, let me, let me be clear, we must be willing to compromise. We must be willing to compromise and yield in non-essentials and areas of preference and personal convictions. Music styles are not something that the body of Christ should break apart over. Well, I like a choir. Well, I like a praise team. Well, I like a tambourine. I don't think I'm playing that anymore, but you know, that was a... That was one of the 70s, right? You know, that one kind of went by the wayside. But uh, I was telling my daughters the other day, I heard an 80s song, I heard a saxophone. I said, see, we used the saxophone in the 80s. I mean, <laughs> that's not really used in today's music, you know. But musical styles are not something that we would break fellowship over. Passing, passing an offering plate versus using a box on the back. We personally use a box here. Somebody's like, do you all even take an offering? Yeah, it's a box there and then a box out there. And then there's online. But... Um, some of you may use gospel tracks. And some of you say, I don't, I don't use tracks. I just like to use my voice. That's fine. Those are preferences. There's different gifts. There's different styles. And some of you may say, I, I like to send an email to somebody, or I like to use text, or I'm going to use the gospel. I'm going to share it on my social media. Those things are uh, how God leads. They're preferences. Some, you know, I've, I've met people say, we don't celebrate Christmas, and they're, and they're strong believers. I've other people say, we do celebrate Christmas. That's not something to divide over. It's a personal conviction. Personal conviction. Some of you say, I'm never going to touch alcohol again. And some of you say, I like a glass of wine with a steak. Those are not things to divide over. Grace in these matters fosters unity for us striving together for the gospel and for people to grow in faith. We cannot compromise on the gospel itself. We cannot compromise on who Jesus is and what the gospel stands for. It's Jesus alone, by grace alone, by faith alone. We cannot compromise on that ever, on God's design for marriage. Jesus taught on marriage. He said, and God created them male and female. And he's not apologizing for that. Amen? Amen. He was doing that that people would come to know the truth. We can't compromise that God has created the world. You can tell me all day long that you believe in evolution. I'll tell you all day long, I don't. 
I believe God said, let there be light, and there was light, right? I believe God spoke every animal into existence, and if you've ever seen the difference between a giraffe and an ant, you realize <laughs> it's not even remotely possible that they came from the same single-cell amoeba, right? Not even remotely possible. God is the creator of the world. He's referred to that. He's called the faithful creator. Uh, we, 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 can't we can't decide, well, we're just going to be unified even though you don't believe the scriptures are inerrant, and I do. No, we must believe that the scriptures are perfect as God wrote them. Amen? The inerrancy of scripture, the perfection of scripture. To name only a few. Jesus goes on, though. He says that the oneness of believers mirrors the oneness of Jesus and the Father. Look at the middle of verse 21. Father, uh, you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That middle of the verse there, you and me and I and you. So that the oneness, uh, we see the Father and the Son in one another, telling us that the Father and the Son, they are inseparable, and yet they're individual. They're separate, they're inseparable, and yet they're individual all at the same time. So how does that work? Well, it's... When you look at anything related to the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, it's beyond our comprehension. But we know that God has three different offices, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, three offices that are one, one God and Savior that we serve. And though they're different, they operate as one and understand that our unity is not uniformity. Just like there is God the Father, there is God the Son, and there is God the Holy Spirit, there is you individual, me individual, and other individuals, and yet we're to be one. We're to be separate individuals and yet operate as one. We have difference in styles. We have difference in callings. And yet we are to be one in Christ. We have the same nature of Jesus where he's put us together. Just like all the cells of our body, we've got these trillions of cells that operate as one. And that's what the Lord wants us to do is operate as one. But not just one, it's in him. It's not a code of ethics. It's not your way versus my way. We're operating in him. And I, did, I didn't even notice the first service. I've watched, first of all, I got to worship a couple times a day, and that's always a blessing. Got to read the same passage a couple times a day. Got to see the video a couple times a day. I didn't even realize. The last verse I put in my notes is this one I'm going to put on the screen. The very last verse I put on my notes, and it was the last one that popped up on that video. I had no idea that verse was in there. This was the last verse I put in my notes. I actually went back into my notes last night to add this verse, and then I see that the video actually said Romans 12, 5. So we, being many, are one body in Christ and individual members of one another. And why is that true? Because we have the same spirit. Whoever put the video together and whoever, well, whoever was me put my notes together, but the Lord is behind both, right? Whoever did this, I, I did this, you know. But, but the Lord is the same. It's the same Lord that's putting our brothers and sisters on our hearts and putting this passage on your hearts. And so God is reminding us that we're one, and yet we're individual. I don't know how that works, but your marriage that says the two are to become one flesh, right? The two are to become one flesh, and you you still are individuals, and yet God makes you one. It's to be this one in spirit, and that means in Him. What is that? Uh, why is it so important that, it, that our oneness is in him? Well, in him means being conformed 
to his holiness and to his character. You and I cannot make ourselves holy, and we cannot make ourselves like the character of God. But when God fits us into himself, in other words, we're, uh, the Bible says that we are branches that are fused in, if you will. And once we're fused in, then the DNA of Jesus is flowing into us. That makes sense? Now we're, he's the vine, we're the branches, same teaching that night, not the prayer, but earlier that night. So that's how it works. So God is conforming us to his holiness and performing, uh, uh, conforming us to his character. And when we're transformed, it really helps the world see we, 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 our little lives become object lessons. We become what we give as a testimony. When we are transformed, the world sees, that see, Jesus says, that the world may believe. That was his uh, desire here, that the world would believe. And so when we're transformed, people will see it. They'll see that transformation. Um, they'll understand that, you know, they might say, I knew you 10 years ago. Something's happened to you. you. You seem different now. And you say, well, I'm glad you asked, right? And then you begin to explain what Jesus has done. There's a transformation. Uh, the Savior um, was sent from the Father, and he saved souls that formerly, like myself, were selfish and focused on their own wants and needs. And though we're far from perfect, we become all of a sudden, we're more yielding, saying, no, we care about our brothers and sisters. We, we defer to them. What is going to help them grow? And you become others-minded instead of self-centered. You know, we have a very self-centered society, right? All about me and self-care and all that stuff. But really, it's focused on Jesus who gives us that desire to minister one to another. And he also says, he says that, um, that they may believe. Now, Understanding when you believe, you have to be believing in truth. If we were to change the message, this is why it's so important going back to truth again for a second. He said that the world would believe if we give them something other than truth, then they're believing in something that is not true. So the belief is, has to be believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It has to be believing in what Jesus presented and the witness of himself, and what he presented from the witness of the Father. So we can't compromise the gospel in any way that what people believe in, they're believing in Jesus, not something that we came up with, not some man-centered gospel, but the actual living, powerful, life-saving gospel that Jesus presented. Verse 22, And the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. Now, obviously, Jesus continues this pattern of speaking that they would be one they would be one. And again, all of this is that the world may believe. But he goes on here and he says, I have, um, and the glory which you give me, I have given to them. So this glory, what is Jesus speaking of? And he says, I've given them your glory. Well, understand that the very presence of Jesus, the very presence of Jesus in the midst of the apostles, the very presence of Jesus here with us today but when Jesus walked the earth, when he literally was walking the earth, that his presence was a representation of the glory of God, right? The angel said what? Glory to God in the highest. The presence of Jesus. He was called Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. So the very presence of Jesus is the glory of God. So when Jesus gave himself, 
He said he gives his life for the sheep. When he gave himself to the disciples, he's given his glory to them. His presence is his glory. And he soon will be giving them the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which we now have today. After his resurrection, he's going to give them the Spirit, and then at Pentecost, he's going to baptize them with the Spirit. But he has given them the glory of God, but he's also given them the continued presence of God, which ensures that the disciples and ensures that all of us, without the Holy Spirit, we can't operate as one. If we did not have the Holy Spirit, we would go in all different directions, and we'd split apart and we would do our own thing, but the Holy Spirit bonds us as one. So the glory of God, we all gather, when we, when we were worshiping, and some of you were raising your hands, we, none of us have Jesus physically standing here, but we all sensed his presence, and we're worshiping in the same heavenward direction. It doesn't, mean if, doesn't matter if the screens are this direction. We're worshiping in the same direction, heavenly, spiritual-wise, because he's bringing us into the same throne room. The same oneness, if that makes sense. Jesus goes on in verse 23. In them and you and me, that they may be made, that, and this is very important to understand how this worded, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. This is the miracle where Jesus says, in them and you and me. This is the miracle of God through his son bringing us into everlasting life, bringing us into Christ himself, into the presence of the Father, in union and in communion with the living God. Right now, even sometimes you don't feel like you're in communion with God. Sometimes you feel like, I haven't even thought about the Lord in a while. And I just had a bad attitude moment, right? Or something like that. And you don't feel in communion, but when you're saved, you're right now in the Lord. You're in Christ who is in the Father, and the Father's in the Son. Jesus is in us, and God is in the Son. So that puts Jesus, if you look at that as, as a layer, that puts Jesus as the center. Jesus is the mediator. We know he is the mediator According to the book of Hebrews, we know that he intercedes for us as it speaks of in Romans. So Jesus is at the center, and then you have the Son, and you have us connected to the Father through the Son. And it says we're being made, uh, that, they be, that they may be made perfect. Well, we are being made individually and as a, as a body of Christ, as a, as a Calvary Chapel church family, as the larger body of Christ. I mean, there's believers that were in that video that I've never met before, and yet we're being made perfect with them in the spiritual realm, but we're also being made perfect in actually a functional, practical way on how we work together for the striving together for the gospel, but we're knitted together in this uh, spiritual realm of people that you will not see until you are in heaven and you're already one with them because that is the work of the Spirit. But as this is happening, us being made perfect, that they may be made perfect, it is a process. Can I get an amen on that? It is a process in being made perfect. We will never be perfect this side of heaven. And for you of you are visiting, the people that go here, they've heard me say it a million times. I'm going to keep saying it until we get to heaven. But Jesus does not say, well done, good and perfect servant. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. The only perfect servant was Jesus. 
The rest of us get faithful because we know what faithfulness looks like. You know what a faithful employee looks like, and you know what the non-faithful employee looks like, and you don't depend on them, do you? Hey, would you cover my shit? Well, I wouldn't even ask you. We're not gonna, you're not going to show up. I'll ask this person, right? So you know what faithfulness looks like, but perfection is something God is doing in us, but it takes a long time. It takes a lifetime of God continuing to conform us to the image of Christ, and we're far from perfect, but he's making us in that direction. And yes, there is a glory, there is a perfection and uh, a coming righteousness when we get to heaven that everything will be perfect. That's still to come, but right now we go through this process and Jesus covers us right now and brings us into the presence of God through his perfection. And his perfection is being perfected in us. It says that the world may know, uh, that the world may know that it can see us being changed. And they may not say it. You, you have people in your life that, that you might not think are, man, I, I've tried to get this family member. I'm going to finally see them at Thanksgiving again. And, and I'll try and invite them to church. Or uh, I've seen this person at work. And every so often I'll invite them. And that, that, you may not think they're observing you, but they are. Did you know that? People are, people are observing our life. That's why we have to live it in such a way that, Lord, we're living it by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we're living it in conform to the image of Jesus because people are observing, are being changed as a witness of who Jesus is, and it's a witness of his love for souls that just like he loves sinners like me and you, he loves every other sinner in the world too. That's why he came. God so loved the world. Verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. Here Jesus is looking forward to that day when he brings all the believers home to God the Father. Won't that be great? The homecoming of all believers that have ever lived. I've got a lot of saints that I'm looking forward to talking to. You know, I, I want to talk to John. I want to tell, tell me about Patmos. Tell me about all these things. Tell me what it was like to walk. To, tell me what it was like to be with Jesus and all those things, but many others. But he's going to bring the whole bride of Christ will be brought with the bridegroom, and we will finally be sinless perfection. In this lifetime, we're being made perfect. But there, he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me. Remember he said in my father's house earlier in the night, are many mansions, if it were not so, I would have told you. This is what he's, that they would be with me in the father's house and they would see the glory of Jesus. That, that, and he's saying they is all of us up until now. All, they is the all believers of all time that have ever lived. That, and those that will future believe and that would be us at this point because we didn't, we hadn't come into existence at this time, and yet this prayer was covering us 2,000 years ago that we would be then eventually brought to be with Jesus, and that will be when he brings the whole church home to heaven. This I desire, where he says I desire, is Jesus expressing his love for the complete fulfillment of the Father's plan. Now, he knows it's going to be fulfilled, but he's looking forward to it being fulfilled. And, and to a lesser degree, because we've now been saved, we know everything is going to be fulfilled. We know we're going to meet Jesus face to face, but right now we're still looking forward to it. Amen? It's still a future thing for us. He also looked forward to unveiling his glory. 
that they would see the glory that I have with you before the foundation of the earth. Now, Peter, James, and John, they got a glimpse of this on the Mount of Transfiguration. You guys know that story, right? It's just uh, not too long before the cross. Jesus takes them up on a high mountain, and he unveils a little bit of his glory, and it's so bright, it's like blinding light. And he unveils some of his glory. They had never seen Jesus that way. They'd seen him do miracles, but he unveiled a little bit of his glory. And I believe where he says, the glory I had with you before the foundation of the world. Uh, this is just my own, this is my own commentary. This is my own opinion. It can be wrong, and I'm totally okay if it's wrong. I'm just simply, it, I find it very interesting that Jesus inserts in this prayer before the foundation of the world. I believe that when we get to heaven, there's so many things that God is going to reveal to us that we formerly had no understanding. But he said, I want them to understand the glory I had with you before the foundation of the world. In other words, I believe Jesus is uh, indicating here that we may very well have an understanding of things in eternity past that only God could reveal to us. Before the foundation of the world is not a concept that we can go to. We only have our starting point. For me, February 1st, 1969. Everything else is just stuff I'm reading in Life magazine or whatever else, right? But he's saying before the foundation of the world, that they would understand the glory that I've had with you for eternity past, eternity present, eternity future. I hope that makes sense. But uh, I think Jesus is, is pointing to so much more revelation when we're in heaven of things he'll be revealing for all of eternity about himself. Verse 25, O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. As was the case when Jesus said, Holy Father, back in verse 11. I already mentioned that he only said that one time in his entire ministry. In this prayer, he said, Holy Father. And Holy Father, as a title, even those two words side by side, are never appearing anywhere else from Genesis to Revelation. Only in this prayer did he say, Holy Father. But we have a second. Here he says, Righteous Father. It is also the only time this title is used in the all, all of Scripture. So righteous Father is only used one time in the whole Bible by Jesus in this prayer. Those two statements, Holy Father and Righteous Father. This title, when Jesus addresses uh, the Father, when he says this word righteous, because he already said Holy Father, righteous, when you see it related to God's name or Jesus' name, anywhere in Scripture, when it says righteous and it's related to Jesus or the Father, and obviously this title is a one-time thing, but, but there's other passages that speak to the righteousness of God or the righteousness of Jesus. But righteous as it relates to God or Jesus always means faultless, just, and right. Let me say that again. Righteous as it relates to God means faultless, just, and right. As it relates to people, it does not mean faultless, just, and right. It means character-like Strong character, really, really good integrity, that kind of thing. But it does not mean that we are faultless, always just, and always right. But God is always faultless, always just, and always right. Amen? God is 100% perfect. No matter what anyone thinks on the matter, he is 100% perfect. And if Jesus says that the world has not known God, and he does say that, uh, we can be completely sure that Knowing about God, knowing the names of God, 
even maybe praying to God here or there. Well, I go to uh, I go to I go to church two times a year, the big ones at Christmas and Easter, and I, I make sure I get a prayer up there. No, no, no. Knowing about God, seeing His name on your dollar bill, seeing His name on a quarter, you can know the name of God, but that's completely different from knowing God. Amen. And a big difference from God knowing you as His own. And so Jesus says that the world may know. Uh, the world still needs to know God personally, and the only way you can know God personally is through Christ, and anyone in this world can come to know God, but that begins by first fully believing in the witness of Jesus, that they may know that you sent me. That's the witness of Jesus. It's important that the witness of Jesus draws us to the Father. Last verse, verse 26, and I have declared to them your name and will declare it, that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. I just want to start with the first half of this verse for just a second. Uh, everything Jesus declared was from the Father and came in the name of the Father. Everything was from the Father. He said, my Father has told me to tell you these things. I have presented everything the Father wanted you to know. But before I kind of close with these last verse, verses on uh, love and this prayer, uh, I wanted, as I mentioned at the beginning, I, I wish I could teach the whole thing, verses 1 through 26, in a single setting because you get the bigger, clean picture of verses 1 through 26, but we don't have enough time in an individual Sunday to do that. And so we've kind of split it up into three sections. But I did want to close with something I think might be uh, helpful for all of us here. And it's what Jesus has declared in the totality of this prayer, starting all the way back in verse 1. Uh, Dr. J. Vernon McGee, uh, who went to be home with the Lord, um, I don't know how many years ago now, uh, he, had, he observed two sets of sevens in this prayer that I wanted to put up on the screen. The first is what this prayer says about believers in the world. So what this prayer says, this first set of seven, what it says about believers in the world, that we were given to Christ out of the world. So God took us as gifts and gave us to Christ. And that's in verse 6. Now you see the corresponding verses are in each one. That we were left in the world. That's evidenced by you will be in rush hour traffic tomorrow. You are still left in this world. Uh, you are not of this world. This is evidenced by when someone says, hey, what did you do this weekend? I went to church and worship God. What did you do this weekend? Not that. So you'll know um, that, uh, you're, that you're not of this world. Uh, number four, hated by this world, the video we just watched. Number five, kept from the evil one. In other words, Satan can't drag you away from Jesus. You are kept by him from falling back into the world and falling back into apostasy or uh, you know, worldly living. Number six, we are sent into the world. So we, we're not saved just to kind of go sit on top of a mountain and wait till Jesus comes back. We're saved to take the gospel to people that just like us need to hear it. And then number seven, we're manifested in unity before the world. When the world comes in here and we have uh, white families, African-American families, Hispanic families, Middle Eastern, we have all that in this church, and God puts us all together with different cultural backgrounds, different ethnicities, different preferences, and says, now I'm making you one choir, as Tawan was leading us, or one body of believers, and we, and we reach out to the community like we did at the fall festival. They see, ah, manifested in unity. So Jesus, he's prayed all these things for us. So this is the first set of seven. And then the second set of seven I'll put up as well. This is the request of Jesus. These are different. The, the, um, these are specific requests that he prayed to the Father on our behalf. One is for our preservation. Aren't you glad Jesus prayed to preserve us? Uh, you know, it's not 
Uh, your health insurance cannot preserve you, but Jesus can. Your job will not preserve you. You might be laid off a year from now. They would never do that. Yes, they would. You know, they, they, they really would. Uh, preservation, joy, that your joy is the fullness of the Spirit. It's not dependent upon, did you get a bonus check? Uh, did, you know, did this go right? Uh, did somebody say hi to me or not? Uh, your, your joy is the fullness of the Spirit. Number uh, three there, deliverance from evil. That Jesus said, I'm praying that you deliver them. Bring them through things. Uh, number four, to be set apart. We can't sanctify ourselves. We can't set ourselves apart. We are set apart. Uh, number four, unity. That oneness, we desire oneness, but we can't make oneness. Now, we do have the right posture of the heart, that God does that work of oneness, but you know he's the one that knits us together, and we understand that. Fellowship, uh, that our fellowship with one another is because we have the same fellowship with Christ. And then lastly, satisfaction. You know that uh, We understand that the glory of God that we can see now is just a foretaste of glory divine, and we're satisfied to know that we're just passing through and we're resting in the arms of Jesus and we have that satisfaction that he help, holds us. Amen? So these are the seven requests of Jesus that are in this, uh, in this prayer. And the, um, all of this, uh, Jesus, he loves us enough that he died for us, um, but he wants to lavish upon us a love that is flowing in us and a divine nourishment and a divine protection and a divine fulfillment. The love of Jesus from God to us is the only thing that will satisfy us in this world. And it satisfies us to a degree and helps open us up to how much God loves us that our full surrender, how many think God wants us to be fully surrendered to him? I mean fully surrendered. Uh, our full surrender becomes not only reasonable, which it is, it's a reasonable service according to, which means logical in uh, Romans chapter 12. Uh, it is not only reasonable, but more than just reasonable, it's joyful. It's not just reasonable, it's joyful because his love overshadows our concerns, overshadows our fears, overshadows our misgivings, and God says, my love is greater than your worries about, will this really satisfy me? And you say, Lord, that's where faith comes in, right? Say, Lord, I believe you will satisfy me. So because of that, I will take my hands off the wheel. God's I've been telling you for a long time, take your hands off the wheel, take your hands off the wheel. And you want to nudge back over and grab the wheel again, right? And you're like, no, 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 I'm not asking you to touch the wheel. I got the wheel. You sit in the back seat till we get there, right? And you just say, Lord, I'm fully surrendered. If that's where you want me, I will do that. And so Paul, I want to close with this last verse. Paul was able to pray or write this verse, although he certainly could have, stated as a prayer, but Paul was able to say this to the church, and it's so true because Jesus has prayed for Paul, but prayed for us, and his love will compel us to have this heart. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, that in me that we've seen numerous times in the prayer, that in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, because we still have a flesh, I live by faith in the Son of of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's why we give our life back to him, because he gave his life to us. We give it back to him. And brother and sister who still loves us and ensures that our surrendered life will be a victorious life. Amen? Because that would not make sense. How does surrender bring victory? Only in God's economy, right? Surrender 
brings victory. And Jesus says, you surrender. I've prayed for you. I've prayed for all the body of Christ for all of time. And he has not only prayed that we would be victorious, but that we would be one in him. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you again for your promise to give us victory in Jesus. And Lord, we pray that you would make us one with you, conforming us to your image. We know that we're in you, but Lord, continue to perfect us. Continue to show us every sin and weight that would so easily ensnare us and to lay those aside and just to be fully surrendered, not try and grab the wheel, but Lord, to take total control of our life. And Lord, in doing so, that the world would see and believe in the truth of the gospel and the love of the gospel and the purity of the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Once you stand as we close in song.